Our next speaker is Jen Morris. Jen began her foray into science in the most indecisive manner imaginable, studying both arts and science at Monash University. Torn between the lofty late night debates of her philosophy major and the intricate beauty of neuroscience, she reached an existential crisis. To make sense of it all, she ventures into the outback for a year with the Shell Questacon Science Circus, bringing the childish glee of the bubble show to remote communities. Looking wistfully at her graduate diploma in science communication, she finally admitted to herself that she'd known all along she was better at writing and talking about science than actually doing it. And so she began her career, her current career, as a freelance health writer and a new researcher in the areas of health care policy, quality and safety. Ladies and gentlemen, Jen. Thank you. I'll do what I'm told. Okay. All righty. On the surface, William Morton did not look set to live a life of great note. Indeed, to the casual onlooker, he seemed like a downright loser. Born in 1819, he drifted aimlessly between careers as a clerk, printer, and our favourite salesman in Boston. Eventually, with a sudden burst of lofty ambition, he entered Baltimore College of Dental Surgery. He dropped out less than two years later. He later claimed that his greatest achievement in this time was learning to solder teeth to gold plates, because that's a great gift to humanity. But dropping out was a little concern to Morton. Like a true 19th century man of integrity, he decided to just practice dentistry anyway. <laughs> so he began work in Connecticut alongside real dentist Horace Wells. The two shared a brief business partnership, but true to Morton's style, that venture also failed. In 1843, Morton married Elizabeth Whitman, niece of a former congressman and, frankly, a woman far out of his league. Her parents objected fervently to Morton's profession as a dentist, believing his status not befitting of their daughter. They only agreed to the marriage after he promised to study medicine. True to his word, he began studying at Harvard Medical School in 1844. But true to his form, he dropped out. While not cut out for actually being a student, Morton reveled in the student lifestyle. He regularly attended student drug parties where the chemistry types who didn't get invited to parties otherwise would pass around the latest mind-bending substances for shits and giggles and the occasional fatality. <laughs> it was at one such party that Morton's former dentistry partner, Horace Wells, first encountered nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas. Wells observed how well it dulled pain. This made a deep impression on him. Because Wells, like many surgeons and dentists at the time, was utterly mortified by the extreme pain he had to inflict on a daily basis. He reported having both vomited and fainted at the very thought of having to do his job. Surgery was an almost incomprehensibly barbaric, brutal and gruesome practice at the time. There was no established concept of anesthesia. Indeed, the established belief was that pain was necessary to keep patients alive during surgery because, and I quote, it kept the mind alert and aware. Patients were strapped to tables while surgeons hacked at their flesh with primitive tools. Patients would scream in agony, faint, thrash around, swear, and very often simply die of shock. The medicos had one thing right, that's for sure. I imagine that if my leg was being amputated without anaesthetic, I would certainly be alert and aware of the fact. 
Enlivened by the tantalising idea that this brutality need not be, Wells experimented with nitrous oxide on himself, as they always did, and his patients, as they always did. And what a tempting prospect he uncovered. The gas seemed to work. Could nitrous oxide really open the door to pain-free surgery? Wells did not seek a patent for his discovery, for he believed that, in the interests of humanity, pain relief ought to be, quote, as free as the air. Wells headed to Harvard Medical School in Boston to tell the elite surgeons about his incredible discovery. In another act of generosity, he invited his former dentistry partner, our loser friend, William Morton, to accompany him and share his triumph. Who knows why? That's right, Wells brought a Harvard dropout and dental school dropout back to Harvard to dazzle its most elite surgical glitterati. Little did he know how his generous offer would haunt his legacy forever. On that cold winter's night in 1845, Wells and Morton appeared in an amphitheatre packed with sceptical doctors and medical students, one of whom had a problem with his teeth. He was summoned forward, given a blast of nitrous oxide from a very professional plastic bag, and then Wells attempted to extract his painful tooth with a pair of pliers. What followed was total and utter chaos. The student made a noise, the crowd interpreted it as a cry of pain, they went into uproar, showered Morton and Wells in boos and hisses and cried, humbug, humbug. The latter was apparently a toxic medical insult at the time. Humiliated, Morton and Wells just picked up and left. Wells, broken by the failure, later became addicted to chloroform and died by suicide. But Morton did not give up. A man of far different ethics, he had dollar signs in his eyes. He could see the commercial potential in being the only dentist, well, wannabe untrained pretend dentist, who could perform his work without actually inflicting any pain. So he turned to another substance doing the rounds at his beloved drug parties, with a lovely name, Sweet Oil of Vitriol, now known as ether. Morton decided to try applying ether to a body part, as you do, to see what would happen. So of course he chose the lowest risk and most sensible option by applying it directly to the inside of his mouth. He experienced a promising numbing sensation. Then he did the next most obvious thing. He used a larger amount to knock out his own spaniel. The spaniel lived and appeared fine. So that was enough for Morton. Soon after he entered his office, took out his gentlemanly handkerchief, applied some ether to it, looked at his watch, lay back in his seat and placed the handkerchief over his face. A few minutes later, he woke, totally unable to move. He later wrote, I was terrified that I would die in that position and the world would laugh at my folly. <laughs> One can only imagine how it would have looked by the time he was found. The ether on the handkerchief long since dried up. William Morton, cause of death, smothered by his own flat handkerchief. Luckily for Morton, he made a full recovery and quickly moved on to performing trials on his unsuspecting patients. Although, given that the ether was a success and they were spared the horrors of anaesthetic-free multiple tooth extractions, one thinks they may have suspected that something was amiss. At 9pm on September 30, 1846, Morton used ether to perform a painless tooth extraction on Eben Frost, a local merchant. This was the trigger for him to risk it all. He wrote to Harvard Medical School, where he had dropped out. 
and where he had experienced such humiliation, asking for one last chance to demonstrate that pain relief was real. It was granted. The date was set for just 16 days later, October 16, 1846. On that Friday, the formidable dome and surgical theatre was packed with medical folk, many expecting and indeed hoping that this uppity non-dentist dentist would fail again. To avoid trickery, an eminent and sceptical surgeon was booked to perform the actual operation, the removal of a large tumour from the neck of a young man, Edward Abbott. In full anticipation that he would be awake and screaming throughout, Abbott was strapped down. At 10am, the arranged time, there was no sign of Morton. So the surgeon prepared to operate anyway. At the very last moment, Morton came bursting in. In his hands was a glass ether inhaler, which he had had built overnight. A complicated system of chambers and valves that had never been tested or calibrated. He had no idea if it would actually work. He handed the device to the patient who took some big whiffs of this allegedly magical stuff. Moments later, the patient reported feeling groggy. Morton took the inhaler back confidently, turned to the surgeon and said, Sir, your patient is ready. What happened next must have seemed like a miracle. The surgery proceeded. The patient made not a sound, not a stir. The operation was long and complicated, but successful. At the end, the patient was asked how he felt. His answer, after such invasive surgery, feels as if my neck has been scratched. The once sceptical surgeon turned to his astonished audience and said, Gentlemen, this is no humbug. Following the demonstration, Morton, with profit in mind, tried to hide the identity of the substance by referring to it as lethion. But others soon identified the ether from its distinct smell, something he'd overlooked. News of its miraculous properties spread around the world in just six months, which was lightning speed at the time. Sadly, Morton's legacy is tainted by the acrimonious 20-year battle for money, credit and fame that followed. A month after the demonstration, Morton was issued with a patent for Lethion. The medical community condemned this as unjust and illiberal in such a humane and scientific profession. Morton tried to assure his colleagues that he would not restrict the use of ether by hospitals and charitable institutions. He alleged that his motives were to ensure competent administration of ether to prevent its misuse and recoup its development expenses. His colleagues did not buy it, did not yield, so Morton did not enforce the patent and ether was soon in wide use. For the rest of his life, Morton obsessively pursued the promotion and recognition of his questionable claim to have discovered anaesthesia. In fact, Georgia surgeon Crawford Long had successfully employed ether as an anaesthetic on March 30, 1842, over four years before Morton did. So why no glory for our friend Crawford Long? Possibly afflicted by the so-called ether frolics from the fumes himself, he didn't get around to publishing his monumental findings until seven years later, three years after Morton's demonstration. Furthermore, Morton's former mentor from Harvard, Dr. Charles Jackson, and his former dentistry partner, Horace Wells, both had well-substantiated claims to have actually introduced Morton to anaesthesia and the properties of ether. 
a three-way battle for the credit ensued for decades. Morton tried repeatedly to seek compensation from the US Congress for the wide use of his alleged invention, as though it was their fault, but all four attempts failed. He later launched a lawsuit against the United States government as if it was their fault. This too, unsurprisingly, failed. To me, it doesn't matter who was first. All of these men made an important contribution to the development of modern surgery and the stripping away of its barbaric history. Morton's contribution was that it was his enterprising commercial spirit, like it or not, that led to the widespread adoption of anaesthesia. Despite two decades of campaigning for recognition, he died aged 49, utterly impoverished. His death on July 15, 1868, in New York Central Park, unable to find shelter from a heatwave while homeless, does not seem befitting of the man who brought anaesthesia to the world stage. A man judged far too harshly by history for daring to mix money and science. Personally, as I spend 2014 filling out 80-page funding proposals, I think the man was a genius. <laughs> Not just because I wouldn't be here without the kind of surgery that he made possible, but because he clearly knew what the future had in store for science. Thank you. Thank you.